Hey y'all, you're listening to Diagnosing Sitcoms and Movies, the DSM podcast. We help make mental health more comfortable by using Black movies and shows we know and love and culture to remove stigma. So join our convo with your hosts, Courtney Copeland, licensed mental health counselor. And Dr. B, licensed professional counselor. What's up, y'all? This episode, we are talking about the 1994 hood classic, Above the Rim, starring Tupac, Dwayne Martin, Marlon Wayans, Bernie Mac, Leon, Will Harris, a bunch of other people too, but these are the ones that we know and love. And of course, because Dwayne Martin is in the movie, we know it's all about basketball. We'll get into that a little bit more, but first let's get into these quotes. Dr. Rosie B, what you got? Please tell me you have all of Bernie Mac's quotables because he had some of the best. I have none of them actually. I think one of my favorite ones is a What you looking for some dick? And like I feel like there were so many more <laughs> that were like really Bernie. I feel like he didn't even have a line for it. He just he just came up with it. <laughs> but, <laughs> that's neither here nor there. No, Hi, I feel like Bernie. probably uh Bernie's movies most of the time they're just like, Yeah, hey, Bernie, go ahead, do what you feel like. <laughs> right, right. He's such an icon. Yes, definitely missed for sure. And it's so weird watching movies and shows with him in it. Because then it's like, man, he's really gone. I feel that shows and movies with nostalgia, we're always, unfortunately, going to have to be like, oh, this person isn't here anymore. Oh, this person just passed. So like, I guess it's kind of a way of like giving these people their flowers because like each episode, I feel like we're like, oh, rest in peace, this is great, but they deserve it. They do, for sure. And of course, we have another uh, legend and icon, Tupac. Tupac Shakur is in this. I've read some of the commentary about the movie and they say that he pretty much stole the, the entire movie. Would you agree or disagree? <laughs> I read one that said, uh, if Tupac wasn't in this movie, it wouldn't be a classic. <laughs> Ooh. It's like, sheesh, harsh. I would I would have to agree. I mean, seriously. <laughs> and, well, yes, I would have to agree. And then on top of that, I mean, he, he pretty much made the movie. His acting was probably better. Leon, Leon might have been a little more into his acting career. But still, I even think that his acting was a little better than Leon's. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Agreed. <laughs> There's no, I have no rebuttal to that. Yes. Okay. Agreed. Cool. <laughs> um, <laughs> my only quotable from this movie, I don't know why, it's just the only thing that's ever really stuck out to me. There's things that stick out, but they more so like relate to the characters and explain like my diagnosis and things. But just from this movie, I like when the uh, the waitress that's trying to holler at Shep <gasps> and the mom come in and she's like, don't waste your time, sis. It may look sweet, but it's gone sour. Okay, she sets him up real quick. Like, get your ass out of here. <laughs> she was so thirsty for him. <laughs> uh, I think... Boogaloo, Boogaloo, <laughs> Marlon. <laughs> so Marlon and Tupac have an interview and, and Tupac basically laughing at Marlon and is like, my name is Marlon Wayans and I'll be playing the role of Boogaloo. <laughs> and they were both laughing and like, what are they calling each other now these days? That's Boogaloo, that's it. <laughs> right. 
Like, it's so weird, Boogaloo. What kind of name is that? <laughs> but he was a booger, for sure. Um, <laughs> he was a cute booger. It was hilarious. But I think he just always had... He always brought that comedic relief. I think it, in most of his movies, that's the case. Um, and when he called him out about his penis not being circumcised and saying it looks like an anteater. <laughs> or just like him. Just it's, it's so big. Would you lift weights with your thang thang? <laughs> like, he's so childish. And his, he was like, they was washing their laundry on these abs. <laughs> when he was in jail. <laughs> So I don't know. He, he's definitely a booger, but he had some of the some of the best quotes too. What do you got? Uh, so I just have well, actually a couple questions. My first one is: So was this film just a clever tool used by Coach John Thompson to recruit more Allen Iverson s players from the hood to Georgetown to play for him? Like I don't know. Y'all tell me. I mean, what better mm-hmm. recruitment strategy is there than to make a hood classic movie where the star player is striving to only go to your school? But you know, that's neither here nor there. Um. <laughs> right. It was a plug. It was definitely a plug for sure lever recruiting strategy um but more importantly my next question is what the hell are boonks like what type of homoerotic repressed activity is happening here like explain, <laughs> explain. what happened <laughs> like you see them assume the position that they grab the fence and stick their butt out like oh <laughs> and apparently it's like the other person throwing the ball as hard as they can at them at their butt but like who who thought of that? And who decided it should be called Boonks? Because that's the sound it makes when, when the ball <laughs> is <laughs> Boonks. <laughs> it does. It does. Oh my God. <laughs> that's my story and I'm sticking to it. I think that's great rationale. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh. I, you know, I didn't even pick up on it, but I remember him grabbing the pants. Oh my God. Assuming the <laughs> position. Oh, anywho. <laughs> weird. Weird. I appreciated them having uh, the Legend in Two Games, Pee Wee Kirkland, um, to help mm-hmm. give the movie even more street cred than it already had with all of the great characters that are in it, which was funny to me though. Like they're making this super, super like East Coast movie, but then the soundtrack was by Def Row <laughs> Records. And so it's all yeah. West Coast artists. <laughs> yeah. I figure Pop just, you know, wrote that into his contract, but he it's did. just hilarious. <laughs> I feel like he did because the whole soundtrack was him. Or like, you know, like one of the major songs was his song, which I, which actually you can't find that song on any streaming platform, by the way. Mm. Mm-hmm. You can find it on YouTube, I believe, like as like a like a little clip or something. But that's about it. It's not I like that. That was they put that song throughout the entire movie, like every other yeah, they scene. <laughs> they said they this song is going to pop. Yes. And, and, and it did. I feel like it was a really popular song. It is a nice song, too. And listen to the words, but it's interesting because Q-Tip was in um, Poetic Justice, and that was supposed to be West Coast, and here he come with his super New York ass, 
in, in that movie. And then here comes Tupac with his super West Coast ass. And this uh, he was just becoming West Coast at, at that particular time. That's when he signed to Death Row because he's definitely born on the East Coast, definitely raised on the East Coast. And then yeah, made yeah. his way to the West Coast. <laughs> but, but you know, representing. Yes, this is when he just started, had first started. Like, if you look at the interviews and different things, especially for like the soundtrack release party and all of that, this is just when he first started, like, really letting that that anger out towards the media and uh fussing at people in interviews this is about the time when that was starting um unfortunately this is like things with him going to jail while they're shooting like all of those things happening made production a little bit difficult but a great movie nonetheless (laughs) i just i just appreciate it and it's a great basketball movie i think most importantly and i think a great quote that i got from marlon was during one of his interviews, he was really talking about how the basketball is the action to this film, like guns are to die hard. And I was like, that's a great way of looking at that, Marlon. I had never thought about it like that. I think that's really awesome. Like the basketball is the action in the film. Mm -hmm. I thought it was also interesting to see how gangs or mobs kind of get themselves affiliated or tied to players within certain sports, you know, for betting and gambling reasons. And so, and I mean, you see that a lot within boxing, especially, you know, the mob was having people, you know, be like, oh yeah, just don't fight. And niggas getting knocked out in the first round just so they could win. (laughs) So uh, I think this is a perfect depiction of, you know, people, you know, taking advantage of athletes. I think that's more things. I think they're so, just so misused and misunderstood. And it's like, they need more advocates. I'm so happy your your work is going to be with working with athletes because they need it. I hope that's what I can. I was like, did I misinterpret your goal? (laughs) It's in there somewhere. But um, no, definitely. And the long history of like Rucker Park and those type games where the, basically the, local whoever the man is is going to sponsor a team and then those teams are going to battle it out and then but they're competing on so many levels of who has the best players whose team going to have the best shoes who going to have the best uniforms and I feel like we saw that in very uh, indirect ways in this film so I just appreciate the film for being really rooted in actual real experiences despite the theatricality of it the dramatization of it the the like we couldn't get one father in the whole film could nobody have a daddy? I mean, my goodness, I feel like this whole movie would have been an episode or like a commercial length if we just could have had some fathers inserted in there. They could have taught their sons how men process their experiences and thoughts and emotions in healthy, masculine ways. And it, we wouldn't even have a whole film. But... <laughs> well, I feel like that's what, I, in an odd way, Flip was trying to do. <laughs> um, <laughs> in some odd way, he was like, the unwanted uncle on the street. Um, <laughs> and then, I mean, Shepard, I feel like Shepard was trying to do that in some ways, but he was having to deal with his own demons and his own issues that he wasn't anybody's father figure or role model, honestly. So, yeah. Yeah, I guess you're right. There was no father figure or any father type. I feel like it plays into that trope of like Black families not having fathers, but that's also kind of 
kind of true at the same time. It's a conspiracy by demand to destroy the nuclear family system of Black people. But, you know, that's something that I could get into and have a whole other podcast on. So while we're here, (laughs) let's Mm -hmm, just go mm -hmm. ahead and talk these diagnoses. So (laughs) (laughs) when did you diagnose for Thomas Shep Shepard? Thomas Shep Shepard is definitely post-traumatic stress disorder. You could see that within his, just his mannerisms um, when, you know, interacting with people, especially the the waitress. Uh, He had no interests, okay? And there was no conversation. But even with Coach Rollins, he was just very, like, you know, not wanting to have those interactions. But as far as, like, looking at the criteria, of course, he meets it with um, criteria A, exposure to actual or threatened death. So, of course, seeing an unfortunate death of his friend while playing basketball, the thing that he loved the most. And then, um, let's see. Yeah, and then the reoccurrence, um, intrusive, distressing memories. Um, So you, you see that within that first clip of the movie with him having that nightmare um, and then waking up to his friend's death. Could you remind me of his friend's name? Again, with these names, his name was Nutso. Like, where did they come up with these names? But Nutso, like, was there a Nutso in your hood? Because I didn't have a Nutso. (laughs) So what did you have? No, I definitely and completely agree with you uh, with Chef for post-traumatic stress disorder. I feel like, honestly, um, from all of the diagnoses that we've made of PTSD so far, this is the fullest depiction because we do get the intrusive thoughts. We get the memories, we get the flashbacks, we get the dreams, like we get all of that in this film. So I feel like this is one of the best representations of post-traumatic stress that we have seen. Again, with the criteria, you talked about the um, distressing memories. He has the distressing dreams, uh, waking up in cold sweats, the reactions, the flashbacks, in which the individual feels or acts as if the traumatic event was occurring. So he's full on, <laughs> like uh, Boogaloo said, he playing ball without a ball and uh, really in the part going through the motions and everything. Intense or prolonged psychological distress at exposure as well as he had a couple other of the avoidance or efforts to avoid external reminders that aroused the distressing memory. So like he had just skipped town and nobody knew where he was and what was going on for however long that it was. Persistent and exaggerated negative beliefs, as well as negative emotional state. He had a lot of like guilt and shame over everything that happened, which I don't feel was just because who plays basketball on the of the roof and the with the hoop on the edge of the roof that's it sounds uh-huh. irresponsible to me <laughs> that was actually something that they pointed out as like a a blooper or like a a goof if you will on imbd or dbm well, yeah, okay yeah that was you were right the first time <laughs> so i shouldn't have said it's myself so yeah think- they were talking i don't know <laughs> It's right in front of me. So (laughs) um, they said that at one point when you look at it and they're playing, there's clearly a wall with a glass window. Mm -hmm. But then when he actually falls, there's no window, there's no wall. So I was wondering, like, is it just like perception is off? And so like a couple of feet ahead, there was a window with a wall, but there was the in between the buildings right there. I was just confused. Either way, it was irresponsible. Even if you're playing in front of a window with a wall, who plays basketball in front of a window with a wall for you to break one of the windows? Either way. That close. 
yeah, irresponsible. Like, yeah. <laughs> he also had feelings of detachment and estrangement from others. He definitely experienced that with Birdie. And then we have hypervigilance, him being on edge and kind of keyed up and watching everything that's going on, how he was, which is how he was able to save Kyle. And I guess that's a good thing for you to have if you're going to be a security guard. I don't know, but I don't need you having <laughs> flashbacks while you're trying to keep us safe. There's the exaggerated startled response, which we see in the diner when the mom kind of taps him on the shoulder and he yeah. freaks out a little bit and scares the hell out of her. <laughs> right. And then, of course, the sleep disturbances like we talked about earlier. If Shep was my client. One thing that I would have liked to see happen, though, is somebody uh, assess for suicidal ideation because of like everything else that's going on. But then also the losing of his mother as another loss and him saying he's just back to bury his mother and um, things like that. So I would just because I don't feel like we assess for suicidal ideation enough in black males. That is something I would like to see happen. And then he says like a couple of things that uh, kind of are red flags that he is struggling with uh, PTSD where I think like Coach Rollins asked him something like, where your head at or where's your mind at? Something like that. And he's like, nowhere. It's stuck. It's the rest of me that does the running. And then just felt bad for Shep. And everybody blamed him. But I was like, oh, he's struggling. He's still that little kid. Somebody help him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's stuck there. It's like he's mm-hmm. stuck in that place in that time. And he's having a really hard time finding himself outside of that. Yep. And so I, I was glad that he was able to, though, try to at least start building some type of relationship, whether it goes on or not, just companionship even more so with Kyle's mom. I think her name was Malika. I'm not sure. But um, <laughs> but I, I was glad to see him like start to engage with another individual and smile and joke and be able to carry on full conversations. And he's present in the here and now moment, which is something that you want to try to get people who are struggling with PTSD to come back to and focus on what's going on in the here and now, especially if they are having those flashbacks, those um, hallucinations, putting themselves back in the past, getting them to focus on here and now and that they are safe in this moment. Yeah. So in the... So with your role of being like his therapist, what would you recommend for him if he says, okay, I am going to take on this position as the coach for the basketball team? Would that be something that that would um, be a hindrance to his treatment or do you think that would be helpful? It To me, I think it would be helpful because um, when Kyle says like, I owe you. I lost, I owe you. You owe me. That's right, I owe you. Hear that nutso? The boy here says he owes me. He owes me. I think that (laughs) that would be his way of paying back what he feels like he owes to nutso. And so him pouring in all of that um, positive energy, that experience, that knowledge, that passion for basketball into future generations, I think that would give him a positive correlation with basketball and and try to, to alleviate some of the negative experience that he has with basketball. Like he wasn't playing aside from reenacting because he has that negative association with basketball now. And I think him having a more positive one would help push him a little bit further. But with him having PTSD and him putting up those uh, avoidant behaviors and all of those different things, it sounds like Birdie took his leaving very, very hard, very, very personal. And it, I'm I'm kind of concerned about what was going on with their mom, why she was feeling like 
he was supposed to have taken care of them. Like when uh, Birdie saying to him, like mom was like, oh, Shep, oh, Shep. She really mm-hmm. thought she was coming back to save us. Like, it's he's the child. It's not his responsibility to save y'all. It was not his responsibility to be the breadwinner for y'all house. Like, yes, y'all had aspirations of him going pro and things like that. But again, like him taking care of y'all is not his responsibility because y'all not his kids. Now, if as a family, he feels a sense of responsibility and wants to do for y'all, okay. But y'all being poor is not Shep's fault. And if your mom checked out when Shep left, again, that's not Shep's fault. And so I was kind of like, I wonder if Birdie, because they didn't have, I don't know what the relationship would have, could have, is with the whatever father that they did have. Um, I wonder if Birdie looked at Shep as that father figure. And so being abandoned by a father and then being abandoned by Shep. And which leads me to why I diagnosed him with borderline personality disorder because of those fears of wanting to be of not wanting to be rather be abandoned i see it's interesting you say okay so we're both in the same area with birdie as far as a personality disorder because i gave him paranoid personality disorder because i felt like because of his life because he had to go into this street life he was i he had this distrust and suspicion of everyone and their motives. And you could see that with, you know, him, with Kyle talking and kind of finding more out about his relationship to Shepard through Flip and him getting upset about it um, and denying that, you know, they're like pretty much not, he's not related to him, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and then preoccupied with unjustified doubts about the loyalty and trustworthiness of friends or associates. So you see that definitely with even his own brother, reluctant reluctant to confide in others um, of unwarranted fear that information will be miraculously um, maliciously y'all I just made up my own word did Malac- you just say miraculously <laughs> miraculously mm-hmm. <laughs> maliciously <laughs> used against him or her and then uh, criteria B does not occur exclusively during the course of schizophrenia see now that's where that's where I should have probably went a little further. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's not, yeah, I don't think he's like, he has bipolar disorder or um, depressive disorders with, psychi- with psychotic features. Yeah, so I think that does fit. I don't know. Maybe I'm pushing it on there, but I do I do like your personality disorder as well. Um, yeah, so the borderline. criteria for borderline personality is frantic efforts to avoid real or imagined abandonment, like how we talked about earlier. A pattern of unstable and intense interpersonal relationships characterized by alternating between extremes of idealization and devaluation. And I feel like we see that first with um, with Kyle, where he's building Kyle up and trying to get him into his team. Birdie is a good coach, if nothing else. That man is a master recruiter. He got mm-hmm. him in there, got him a girl, got him, you know, it was, you know, satisfying all of his uh, vices. And then later on, it's like, uh, I don't care what jersey you wear, you're still playing for me. <laughs> and kind of, te- you know, trying to tear him down. And then we also see that with his interaction with Shep where as soon as they're in the graveyard and he sees him, he looks at him, he gives him a hug and he's like, "You, uh, we can be partners and all of those things. And then soon as um, Shep is like, I'm not on the same thing that you're on. Like, I'm not about to be selling that shit. Are you dumb? And then he's like, you ain't the man no more. I'm the one. And then he goes into his whole thing about don't get caught up and all of that. And so it's the 
back and forth with those extremes of idealization and then devaluation impulsivity in at least two areas that are potentially self-damaging i felt that that could potentially be um the selling drugs and murder i feel like murder is not is you know a little and it was impulsive I, yeah you know so those are the two <laughs> and then um effective instability due to marked reactivity of mood being uh irritable and we see um some of the like you were saying with the paranoia a little bit of the anxiety and the worry and trying to think um ahead of other people and the chronic feelings of emptiness and that's something where uh boogaloo I have to stop trying to call him marlon boogaloo who's like um okay. i think that uh no not booger <laughs> <laughs> he said uh i think birdie he like winning more than he like money and pussy like he jerk off the winning i think that him yeah. doing that and that and if presenting himself as bigger than others and all of that other all of those other things was because he was battling feelings of emptiness within himself. And so if he could be the best or if he could be a winner, then that would suffice and fulfill that emptiness that he was feeling on the inside. Inappropriate, intense anger or difficulty controlling anger. I mean, he murdered Flip. So like, there's that. And <laughs> um, we also get that transient stress-related paranoid ideation um, that you talked about a little bit earlier. And so with that being included here, I think that um, borderline personality was a good fit. And then like when you go through some of the diagnostic features of it, it talks about um, how they are easily bored. And those well, those who have pers borderline personality disorder might constantly seek something to do and might frequently express inappropriate, intense anger, have difficulty controlling their anger, display extreme sarcasm. Um, and verbal outbursts like when he was like is this a joke is this a fucking joke and then he pushed uh, Boogaloo on the floor and everything and that anger is often um, also elicited when a caregiver or lover is seen as neglectful withholding uncaring or abandoning and so he orders uh, Mozart to kill Kai or not kill him we'll shoot him we don't mm -hmm. Whatevs. He tells him, handle your business after Shep joins the other team and helps them win the shootout. So that could have been the final straw of that feeling of abandonment to where he then orders somebody to kill somebody. So, yeah. Whew, I feel like that was a lot. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you, you definitely gave a lot of examples and explanation as to why um, Borderline would fit that particular um, character's mental health hmm. okay i mean i'm still holding on still holding on to paranoid <laughs> you do that so then that's my biggest question is how do you treat how would you treat a uh, paranoid with a uh, personality disorder with somebody like birdie where some of that paranoia is necessary for him to survive and be successful in the industry that he is in and so some, you don't want to take too much of that away because that could mean him being murdered <laughs> like <Yeah. laughs> but <laughs> like how do you get to a place where you have a healthy level of it with someone where um it's serving them in the area that they're in mm. you know honestly i think the the only thing or not only thing but the the best treatment for like uh, personality disorders usually um cbt I, I feel, you know, um, because you're still having to deal with the cognitive and the behavioral aspects of it. And so, you know, a lot of that is 
distorted thinking or, you know, this kind of idea that, you know, whatever perception or reality that they have is what actual reality is. So then you're having to, to kind of break down their thought processes. And then the behavioral part, I feel, would probably be a little harder, especially depending on what the behavior is. And it seems like for him, it would be murder. <laughs> uh, yes. Let's just work others. on our biggest treatment goal is to get you to stop murdering people. Let's start right. <laughs> Harm reduction. <laughs> yes, yes. So um yeah, I think I think that is probably where I would start. I would definitely just like go CBT all the way. I wouldn't even try to pull in any of any other psychotherapy. <laughs> working with that population because it's just not it's I, I feel like they're just gonna fuck with you you're like you know especially because <laughs> they know how to manip- manipulate situations and people to get what they want especially if they feel like oh oh you you understand me oh you think you you think you got one over on me and that's when they they turn something on you they either shut down or don't want to come they they ghost you um so yeah CPT all the way. How would you work with this population? Hmm. Well, <laughs> I do think that CPT would be a, a, a good way to go. And I think that it would be a lot of that um, safety planning, allowing them to choose those first like initial goals that we work on in treatment and things like that. Especially like if I'm operating with, I'm diagnosing him with bipolar. I mean, not bipolar, sorry, with borderline. My borderline clients are always just uh, a special, special kind of joy and pleasure because like you said, with that manipulation and trying to basically like suck you into that world of crazy that they live inside of in their head. And so trying to do that intricate dance would be very, um, I'd earn my money during session, but (laughs) with Birdie's prognosis of him being dead, I don't think he would be my client. (laughs) True that. <laughs> because Boogaloo Booger shot a dead. Booger. <laughs> he was so, he was such a booger. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, then let's get into Boogaloo. Um, did you okay. have a diagnosis for Boogaloo? Uh, no, not from the DSM other than he was hella annoying. I loved him. I thought he was a great friend. <laughs> um, I, I did my, feel that. Go ahead. I think my my favorite thing about him was like he gave no fucks about what anybody had to say and did what he wanted to do, especially when he came out into that court with that all gold sweatsuit. Kyle said you look like a 24 karat Urkel. You my man in the whole nine, but you look like a 14 karat Urkel. <laughs> Yeah, putting a damn chalk on his hands. I need more powder. powder. I need more powder. I need more powder. No, you don't. You need to sit down. Grip, baby. All about grip. But anyway, what's your diagnosis for Booga? For Boogaloo, most importantly, I did feel like he was struggling with uh, Eric Erickson's pros psychosocial stages of development. I felt like he was struggling Mm -hmm. with that identity versus role confusion, um, which does happen in adolescence. And it's your, the person is basically trying to answer the question of who am I and where am I going? 
And uh, teens need to develop a sense of self and personal identity where if they are successful with that, that leads to an, uh, an ability to stay true to themselves, where mm-hmm. failure of doing that leads to confusion and a weak sense of self. And I feel like that is kind of what we were seeing with him coming up there looking like a 24 karat Urkel. I feel like he was trying to... <laughs> Kyle was successful and Kyle had a plan and so he just came home from from juvie whatever or jail whichever one he was in and was like okay well then I'll do what Kyle is doing but Mm -hmm. he's not a baller he doesn't have the skill that Kyle has and then even at the end when he does shoot um birdie it feels like well then is he taking on what he sees Mota and and birdie doing by being gangster so you're gonna shoot him like it still feels like we end the movie without him finding his true self um Mm -hmm. i did i we don't get a lot a whole lot of backstory on boogaloo and so i did find it hard to diagnose him and so i just kind of am thinking about possibly an unspecified anxiety disorder because of the thoughts of worry and things that he had while some of them were justified some of the other things um more so was him just struggling with the stages of development that he was going through. But yeah, he needed, he needed whole movie. If we had some fathers, <laughs> would have yeah. been a whole different film. <laughs> I mean, it's so true. Um, well, and see, I agree that he does have, he is going through certain issues with that um, identity and as far as his developmental processing However, um, like you said, I, I also agree that we don't have enough information. I think what was surprising, and I think this is like common or maybe something that everyone felt when they saw it, when you realize who shoots or who shot Birdie and it being him because he was such a light person, a happy-go-lucky type of person throughout the movie. Um, and for us to see him shoot him is like, Oh, that's why he was in jail. Okay. Okay. You know, like, oh, he's not one to be fucked with. You know, it's like that, that feeling of like, um, you know, nice people and you have, you can push them, but so far type thing. And he was, he was nice. He, I think he kind of like admired Birdie, Birdie mm-hmm. in, in some ways. Um, and just really just wanted to be accepted. And I think the last straw for him I think it was when he when he hit like he pushed him, didn't he? Mm-hmm. Pushed him on the mm-hmm. floor. Pushed him on the and floor. Everybody laughed at him. Yeah, and I think that was a moment for him where he was like, "Yeah, I'm gonna get mine." I think he made. I don't up think in his he life. had it in that moment though, because um, when they go downstairs and Kyle is talking to him, <laughs> you got to stand up for yourself. And he's like, "Yo, mm-hmm. like he, do you know what he did to Flip? Like, what you think he gonna do to me? Like, he did to that that to him for no reason. What you think mm-hmm. he'll do to me?" And so, um, I think in that moment there was still the fear that you know had him leave out the out the door. But I think mm-hmm. after like him seeing Mo ordered to shoot Kyle, I think that was the, like, the, the straw that broke the camera's back. Like, oh, nigga, you just can't be stopped. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's true. And then, I think, to your point, too, like, like as far as Erickson's theory, you know, of course, it has its limitations. And I think it, it can be applied in this sense, but also has its limitations to culture, too. Like, the social expectations. So, was it expected for him to have the like to have his own sense of self when he was constantly within a system especially when when he's in jail like how do you have a sense of self if you're having to 
go outside when everybody else goes outside, eat when everybody else eat, you know, and then you have to find ways to protect yourself. So you're likely to go and do what other people are doing to make sure that you don't, you don't get raped or beat up. That escalated very quickly. I didn't think that you were going there. <laughs> but to, I guess stick with the uh, the theory is that um, if you if you are able to move through that stage successfully, then it, regardless of the circumstances that you are you are put in, you have a better ability to stay true to yourself. And so regardless of, you know, you are, with, like you said, within a system and they're telling you when to do, what to do and how to do it, you are able to have a certain peace of mind about yourself. And I think he wasn't able to develop that. And he might not been able to develop that because he was in a system. Um, it might have took away his opportunity to explore and really figure out what he wanted his identity to look like and what his sense of self was. Um, I think that that definitely had an influence on his ability to do that. But definitely since he didn't develop that, he just out here kind of flapping in the wind until he figures and solidifies what his identity is. And um, once you have a body, especially once you have a body that young, <laughs> usually the prognosis isn't that great because, you know, then that begins you get stuck in that cycle and other things like happen to retaliation and other people want to do things to you because of the things that you've done and you know all of that but where again where was their school counselor well Bert, i mean uh bookaloo wasn't in school he had just got out of juvie so yeah yeah it didn't matter so, he won't go and see a school right. counselor no how <laughs> poor thing is poor it thing. is it bad for me to say that his identity and role was to be a killer all along it's not bad i just did i just didn't see him as a killer. Like he was going in for petty stuff from like what we gathered from the film at the beginning. And so him, you know, just doing, you know, little stuff here and there to get by. Yes, I saw that. I was surprised that he was the one, like when the first time I saw this, I was surprised that he was the one that ended yeah. up killing Birdie. Like I could see it because the male e ego is so fragile mm -hmm. and you embarrass me in front of a whole bunch of people. I have to do something to garner that level of respect back. And so I, I can, I get it. But just the the character that he was, I didn't see it. And so I would, of course, there's no part two or anything, but prognosis wise, <laughs> it would be interesting to see where Boogaloo went after that. Because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it also seems as if he might have aged out of juvie mm -hmm. as well. So he's actually going to be charged as an adult and likely to serve a life sentence. That is the prognosis for Boogaloo. Booger. <laughs> I hate that you keep calling him that. It's hurting my feelings. <laughs> I think booger is such a word of endearment. Look at no, you, you don't. Booger. No, you don't. You booger. Don't you, you booger. ever call me a booger. <laughs> <laughs> hey, booger. <laughs> mm -hmm. All right, so who we got next? I know I'm depressed thinking about how the system has uh, done its job in failing the life of Boogaloo and never giving him a chance from the start. But I guess we could keep going. <laughs> mm, I know. Well, let's talk about his bestie cow. Okay. Um, we do see that cow eventually does make it into uh, Georgetown and, and wins a game and all of that good stuff. And so it wraps up the movie on yeah, a positive it. note. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I diagnosed Kyle with uh, Kyle Watson with <laughs> adjustment disorder, with anxiety mm. and disturbance of conduct. Uh, it did seem like he was struggling with 
feeling that he should have already gotten the acceptance from Georgetown and waiting for that to come in. And that basically what that transition would look like from him playing high school ball into then collegiate ball and all just all the stress of that upcoming trend, uh, that anticipatory stress of those things all coming into fruition. And so with uh, adjustment disorder, some of the criteria that exists for that is the development of emotional or behavioral symptoms in response to an identifiable stressor. The symptoms, the symptoms or behaviors are significant as evidenced by marked distress that is out of proportion of the severity of or intensity of the stressor, taking into account the external context and significant impairment in social, occupational or other areas of functioning. Yes. And once the stressor or its consequences have terminated, the symptoms do not persist for more than an additional six months. And so it really just seemed like he was struggling with that transition phase. And again, if he had had a father, unfortunately, his father passed. But if he had had a man in his life that was willing to be able to walk him through that transition and build a stronger foundation with him on how to process certain things so that once all of that change was coming at him, it didn't freak him out the way that it did. And I felt like Coach Rollins could have done a better job at preparing him for that transition. But I feel like Coach Rollins was going through a job burnout. He's at the end of his career and feeling like he's just waiting on retirement. And so I think he wanted Shep to take on that role for him because he realized that he couldn't do it because he just didn't have it to give anymore in that role as a coach. And so um, he was trying to get Shep to do it. Shep didn't want to do it at first. And so Kyle was struggling until Shep was able to come in and really help him out. So for me, I gave him narcissistic personality disorder. Sheesh, he's not even 18. <laughs> he can't qualify. <laughs> well, I mean, he meets a lot of the diagnostic criteria. <laughs> There's more. Just kidding. Okay, so <laughs> he has a, he clearly has grandiose sense of self-importance, okay? He exaggerated his accomplishments as to why he's not getting talked to by Georgetown's actual recruitment. And he even went as far as to talk to them himself, which he knows is against the rules and is preoccupied with fantasies of unlimited success, right? So he sees himself as this big time college player. He believes that he's special and unique, and he requires excessive ad- admiration. He always wanted the ball. Like he he wanted to have the spotlight on him because again, the recruiters are here. I need for them to see how I can play. How am I going to be able to show them I can play if I'm on a bench? And he has a huge sense of, of entitlement because of that. And feels that because he is a better basketball player that he should have favorable treatment or um, he doesn't have to comply with other expectations because of who he is and how he plays. The other criteria would be interpersonally exploitive, so takes advantage of others to achieve his or her own uh, ends. And so I felt like in some ways he was exploitive in a way that he was willing to accept Birdie's offer just so that he can, with when Birdie offered him like money and things like that, I think he took advantage of that, in my in my opinion, because of this personality trait. I wouldn't say that he lacks empathy, but in some ways I feel like he didn't allow, and I think this might be the case for teenage boys who have a single mother where they become very territorial. And it's like he didn't empathize with the fact that, yes, she's a woman, that she has needs and she wants to date. But that that might just be the kind of expectation for, for men or boys whose mother... Are, whose mothers are dating as well. Yes, yeah, so you needed five criteria. I gave you about seven. 
And the only reason why he wouldn't necessarily be diagnosed with this, as you mentioned, Courtney, is because he is, what, 17? Maybe. And three of them things was weak. He is unique or special. <laughs> Not he as... believes it because it's true. <laughs> he got the whole hood on his back. He got to be the one to make it. <laughs> and that's exactly how cultural pressure. Are that's that cultural pressure. You're not taking okay. into consideration his culture. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the things okay. that I do agree, I felt like also could it be explained with the um, disturbance of conduct with the other disorder and separation anxiety is one of the things that can become present with um, the disturbance of conduct as it relates to adjustment disorder as well. So to me, some of those was explained other places. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, I definitely didn't see the lax empathy. And I felt that we saw the the real him come out as we got further into the movie and when it was time for him to try to stand up for uh, or tell Boogaloo that he needed to stand up for himself. We saw that when he came to coach and says, no coach, I want to run with you. And like we, and then we see him pass and shut the ball. Like we see him being more of a team player because that game doesn't impact his recruiting status. Like, so we get to see a different, um, we get to see him in a different light which seemed less uh, <laughs> narcissistic <laughs> as you had coined. And um, because of that, that's why I kind of was leaning toward less towards um, the personality disorder and more that it's the stressors that are impacting him and disturbing his behavior and anxiety levels. So what was his stressor that caused him to harass and beat up on Flip? That's the disturb the disturbance in behavior. Really, I think that that is partially just because he's a sucker. Because <laughs> when it was an unfair fight and it was him and Boogaloo and just Flip and Flip is uh, a, a homeless man who's messing up, messing him, with, messing with him, beating up on him. Soon as Shep came, he stopped. He ain't have he with no problems with Shep. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think that mm-hmm. was less of uh, more diagnosis and more of just him being a sucker. <laughs> <laughs> All right, all right. Well, I guess. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have a um, diagnosis for Mo? No, I didn't. I just was like, yo, I just don't want to cross his path. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you talk about, uh, what's his name? Uh, Mota? Mm-hmm. Lord, No. He scared me. I like, I was like, oh, <laughs> I loved him and paid in full. I was like, damn, where's that version of him? <laughs> he was so nice and paid in full. <laughs> but no, I didn't have anything for Mozart. He's just crazy. <laughs> <laughs> what you have? <laughs> so I diagnosed him. Well, I, we don't know his age and so I was kind of back and forth on where to go with that and so if he is under 18 then I would kind of look more towards um a disruptive impulsive impulse control yeah, and know. conduct disorder but you if he's over 18 child he's looked 30 since like this is his first movie role like this is his first movie role ever he's looked 30 he looked 30 then he looked 30 in the wire he looked 30 and paid in full but he looks 30 now it's just he has been 30 forever and so i have no idea how old he is supposed to be (laughs) isn't just 
So I'm just, you know, covering all bases. So if he's <laughs> under 18, I'm going to go with some type of disruptive impulse control and conduct disorder. If he's okay. over 18, I'm going to say antisocial personality disorder. And the okay. criteria that I felt like he fit with, uh, which I did go through and make sure that um, he fit there because I do, again, agree with you. He looks over 18. Um, <laughs> so the criteria that I felt like he met there was the failure to conform to social norms with respect to lawful behaviors as indicated by repeatedly performing acts that are grounds for arrest. He did several things that could get him arrested and eventually did get uh, shot at, by the police at the end of the movie. And if he did survive, then he probably is under arrest to this day. Um, <laughs> indeed, indeed. Also, the impulsivity and failure to plan ahead, the irritability and aggressiveness as indicated by repeated physical fights or assaults, and the reckless disregard for safety of self or others. That man shot mm-hmm. into a crowded park. Like He uh, did, didn't he? Yes. I was like, terrible. and then I was like, why would they call this game a shootout? Why would you? And then here he comes shooting supposed to bring guns out. to the park. <laughs> but, oh, okay. um... And then the, also the lack of remorse as indicated uh, by being indifferent or rationalizing, having hurt, mistreated um, another. And so while, yes, if, if your corner boys don't have your money, you do need to set an example. By all means, you have to do what you have to do to get your money. However, <laughs> once he did uh, beat the hell out of those two men on the corner for not having the money that they were supposed to have, he kind of smirked like he enjoyed it. And so that made me feel like, oh, like you don't feel bad or like you don't see that that was problematic. Like that didn't affect you in any type of negative way. You kind of liked it. He got in the car and was like beating his chest. Did you motherfuckers see that? I'm a motherfucking soldier. You know what I'm saying? I drive. And all of those things. And so I just felt it that it was so um, accurate and spot on when Boogaloo then looked at him and said, I think you need a role model. A hug or something. <laughs> oh, okay. That's why I was so disappointed when I saw he pulled that trigger. I was like, you the one that's talking about him needing a role model. Ugh. But I do agree. <laughs> I, I agree. Yes. With those especially. And then didn't um, uh, Birdie have to pull him back once when he was about to go after Flip? He was about to go after, I think he did. And when he was in that park. Most of the scenes have been happening in the park, <laughs> but he was, he, uh, Birdie confronted Flip and he, he was with him, uh, Motel was with him and he was like, nah, you know, and then he kind of addressed it with Flip. So yeah, yeah, I agree. Antisocial. Mm. So what's your prognosis? He did, girl. Um, no, either he is got shot by the police and he died because he did get shot twice by that one police officer in plain clothes because, you know, they got to have the undercover people. It's just a whole park full of games. They had to have the undercover people. They had to have an undercover at a game called the shootout. <laughs> Neither here nor there. But they, um, he shot him twice. So if he didn't uh, die then I'm sure he is still in police custody uh, to this day. And so the prognosis would be either none or terrible. But aside from him, I also, I did not diagnose Flip. I just put listed at that as other concerns with um, his homelessness 
because there was mention of where Kyle is like, oh, he not gone. He probably just out here getting high or something. And I didn't want to take that as evidence of him using because that could have just been a stereotypical biased um, comment that Kyle was just throwing out there because they didn't have much respect for Flip. Like he was even Boogaloo said, you playing one on bum. This is hilarious. Like they so I felt, felt since they had so many negative stereotypes about homeless um, individuals who are homeless, that that wasn't evidence of anything. So I didn't diagnose Flip with anything at all. Yeah, I'm trying to look for the quote where he um, says, like, you know, they can't forget about us mm-hmm. or something like that. They can't and, they, they can't erase what we were. Yeah, they can't erase what we were. And that that stuck out for me, too, because, again, going back to that high school college athlete and how Flip ended out. You know, mm-hmm. with him being this major, like, you know, athlete and this um, this basketball star in high school, they can't erase that. But here you are now. And, you know, like, you know, there's like something that happens, like, you know, as far as like, you know, the emotional, mental part of them that is damaged because they didn't they didn't reach the, that that high goal of becoming professional, you know, or doing something with themselves and in a way that they felt like, you know, within sports. And I think that's common. And and it's like, they're admired and remembered for simply just being one of the best athletes, you know? So yeah, that stood out for me for him, but but nothing, nothing really for for Flip. I felt really bad for him, that's all. Mm -hmm. They ain't had to do him like that. They ain't had to do my math like that. And then it was like Bernie Mac. So I was like, (laughs) Don't do him like that. Stop. <laughs> Don't push him. <laughs> no, Pac, no. Um, but shouts out to uh, Malika, or as Kyle called her mom, uh, for being the most healthy, well-adjusted woman in the entire okay. film. Appreciating her, holding it down, um, continuing to live her life and keep things moving despite uh, the loss of her former husband, Kyle's father. I just like when she tells Kyle, sit your 10 cent ass down. (laughs) (laughs) I said, dang, boy, only worth 10 cent. The crucial. (laughs) (laughs) I remember uh, 10 cent could buy you a little 10 cent um, piece of candy. Shoot, now everything (laughs) will quarter. (laughs) Well, 50 cent. I'm over it. I hate going to a corner store now. Be like, damn, my whole dollar is gone. I used to get 10 pieces of candy with this. What happened? <laughs> Give me a little pack of sunflower seeds for 10 cents. Rude. <laughs> uh, with all of that being said, I did think, though, that it was shiesty that he was developing whatever he was de- developing, um, that Shep was developing whatever he was developing with Malika, but then was still just about to dip and, like, not say nothing. And him seeing the two people playing basketball is what made him come and then, like, drop 30 in them thermals and them corduroys. <laughs> Bruh, I was like, I know that ass is hot, but okay. Not even gonna take the thermal off, like not even. <laughs> Set the whole thing off for me. I was like, what time of year is this? What, what time of year? Okay, I'm confused. Whatever. And you know, thermal and years. corduroys. Right. <laughs> it was cold yes. that morning. That's all I could say. <laughs> it was cold. <laughs> but I agree. I think I think what my issue is though with Monica. Um, that's her name, right? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I swear. I always butcher someone's name. Malika. Um, I think 
it, it just kind of shows this thing that people have with Black women, just having to always be strong and to uphold the household. But I, I also was like, you better, girl. When she, when he came, um, when she came to the door and she's like, no, mm. I'm not doing this with you. Yep. You ran away. You, you know, set them boundaries, girl. Okay. And then for you to realize like, oh, you definitely trash. Like you said, for him to come back for a game, overcome a bad for the sake of being a, like, you know, having a healthy relationship. You're trash. I'm sorry. Like, I don't care. But in true Hollywood like fashion, they end up together anyways at the end because, because you know. Because you saved her son. <sighs> I mean, well, if you take a bullet for my child, I feel like, we could work this out like we just need to establish what i will accept like you can't just run away from me i'm here for you we're just gonna we're gonna work through it though <laughs> my last question is what the hell was the refs doing was it no fouls called all them elbows all them knees all the just you know, punching people in shot. the face because they knew they was gonna get shot at the shootout that's why good point I didn't. I should, you shouldn't sign up for that job now unless you can carry your own, and that's how you you know calling. Hey, look, nah, I said <laughs> the ref got a gun. I said, no, but then also, I think Birdie might have also paid off the ref in order for them to do that. Because Birdie, again, is a great coach. If he was nothing else, he might have been a terrible person and horrible in life. But the man knew how to get a team to victory. He <laughs> did. Okay. <laughs> With that being said, if you would like to support the show to help us get more content out to you all, you can visit our website and follow the support the show link to become a Patreon member or donate on our cash app. Or more importantly, buy our merch. merch. <laughs> now we're happy to get the kind of money that jingles, but we would rather the kind that folds. As always, be sure to follow us on Instagram at the DSM Podcast, and you can subscribe to our show wherever you get podcasts. While you're there, go ahead and leave us a comment because we are counselors and actually care about what you have to say. So until next time, y'all, peace. Okay, bye.